Hebrews. Verse by verse. This is part 12. Don't forget about our Good Friday service. I'm sure you'll hear about that more. Our community, one hour, Good Friday service, 10 o'clock Friday morning. The text this morning is Hebrews chapter 3, 7 through 19. And the title of this teaching is Hearing the Voice of the Spirit While It Can Still Be Beneficial. Hearing the voice of the Spirit while it can still be beneficial. Hebrews 3, starting at verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. I'll talk about that in a minute. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation. That's God speaking. You can tell that hymn, Oh, Worship the King, you can tell it's an old song because it dares to say his chariots of wrath, the deep thunderclouds form. There's not a worship course that's been written in the last 25 years that has the word wrath in it. It might be, but there's not many. I was provoked with that generation and said... They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. That's the end of the Old Testament quote. The writer of Hebrews says, Take care, brothers, sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end, As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. That's the second time he's quoted that. 16. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? He wants to make sure they've got this story straight. Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they should not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Let's pray together. We scoop up all our random thoughts and focus all our energy and attention on the living word. Let nothing squeeze out the voice of the Spirit so that we will hear it today. Today we will hear it, as our text says. And so send your word forth 
let it run through this church and accomplish its full purpose in our lives. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. The therefore at the beginning of verse 7 makes a natural link. See the first word in our text today, verse 7, therefore. It makes a natural link with what our writer has just stated in verse 6. We dealt with this at the end of last week's teaching. Verse 6 says, But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. There's that if word. So our writer is going to change examples in today's text to suit his, his purpose of warning for the next few verses. So he's launching a a new train of thought, and what he's doing is he's switching from the great examples of faithfulness we looked at last week in Moses and in Jesus. He's just been looking at those wonderful examples. Now he's going to turn to a dangerous example of stubborn unbelief in Israel in the wilderness. And so this warning was, was just introduced in that conditional clause in verse 6. Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence. So now our writer is going to develop this warning. The same if is repeated in the opening verse of today's text, verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice. And, of course, by now we shouldn't be surprised at our writer's plan for making his point. We've seen it over and over again in these 12 weeks. As our writer writes to these Jewish believers being um, pressured, nudged back into a Christ-rejecting Judaism... As he writes to these Jewish believers, he begins unpacking his argument with a rather lengthy quote from the writings of revered King David in Psalm 95. So Psalm 95 is going to be quoted in our text, verse 7, 8, 9, 10, 11. In today's text in Hebrews are all a quote from Psalm 95. I said just a second ago that this was a psalm of David, though the psalm itself bears no inscription. I say a psalm of David because David is assumed by the writer of Hebrews to be the author. It's just a side point, but if that interests you, it's in verse 7 of chapter 4. Again, he points to a certain day today, saying through David so long afterward. Just one more contextual thought. I think there was a specific reason our writer chose to frame his warning about being a faithful hearer of God's voice. I think there's a reason the writer of Hebrews chooses this section of Psalm 95. Because if you actually start reading Psalm 95 at the beginning, you would have no idea that the psalm was going to end by the way it begins. The psalm opens this with these, these wonderful words. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. 
I mean, those are great verses. Those are the kind of verses Chris will want to read at the beginning of a worship service. The full first seven verses of this psalm are nothing but a, but a nudge into continuous, glorious, joyful, celebrative worship of God. And then suddenly, from verse 7 onward, the whole tone changes without any warning. And there's, there's nothing but threat, talk of judgment, and, and the psalm ends with God's wrath being so poured out on his own people that they couldn't enter into his promised future and blessing. And I think this is exactly the kind of text our writer of Hebrews wants. He's wanting these Jewish believers, believers right on the edge of turning back to their old Messiah-rejecting religion, he, he wants them to see that Singing to the Lord with joy and devotion is it's empty, it's frustrating to God when his word isn't received with faithful obedience. And so this, this writer of the psalm, and then as it's quoted by our writer of Hebrews, he seems to be cautioning and saying, if you're not obeying, please don't be worshiping. If you're not obeying, then please don't be singing. That's a pretty countercultural message because we're pretty much conditioned to believe people of faith are all the same. And our God is so loving, He's just happy to receive any kind of worship from anyone in any sincerely practiced religion, but apparently not. According to this psalm and the bulk of biblical revelation, God is selective in the kind of approach people are to make. Today's text is fairly long. Let's quickly work through some of the messages, some of the lessons, sorry. Point number one. In any plainly read biblical text, it is the Spirit of God who is speaking. Notice how it opens up in verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says... Today, if you hear his voice. Now, the writer knows full well, because he says so later on in chapter 4, the writer knows full well he's quoting a pretty well-known passage from Psalm 95. He tells us in 4.7 that the writer of this text is David. And, And yet, and yet, this Old Testament text carries a deeper authorship than just David's. I mean, these are the words, apparently, the very words of the Spirit of God. God's words are coming through David's. That's what he says. And the writer of Hebrews, writing many years after the writing of Psalm 95, he still requires his Christian readers to hear divine authority in that ancient text, the Holy Spirit in that ancient text. And just really quickly, this is not some isolated exception, some clever little trick I'm showing you from one passage. This is is the New Testament's repeated view 
of the verbal inspiration of Scripture. I couldn't count the references for you, but here's a good one. 1 Thessalonians 2.13. We also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the Word of God, there, there's that. But maybe, maybe he just means like, you know, God's Word, that religious kind of terminology. When you receive the Word of God, which you heard from us, so, so Paul and his companions, they were the ones doing the speaking... You accepted it not, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. The word of God, which is at work in you believers. So Paul's words, though not even collated at this point as a New Testament document, they are the New Testament equivalent to the old. The same pattern emerges. The words are Paul's, just as the words of Psalm 95 are David's, but they aren't just Paul's words, and they aren't just David's words. And, and those believers at Thessalonica, they're, they're praised for not hearing Paul's words merely as Paul's words. And our writer to the Hebrews, who is going to quote extensively from Psalm 95, says... These aren't just David's words. This is what the Holy Spirit is saying. I hope we hold on to that because that doctrine is, I won't say names, but in pretty prominent circles right now, in evangelical circles, YouTube it. It's really being dragged through the mud a little bit. All right, point number two. The opportunity to hear God's voice is precious beyond telling. Hebrews 3, the last part of verse 7. Here's the emphasis. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. This is interesting. The day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation. I, I was I was provoked with that generation. And said, they, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So here we are today. Here we come, we're opening up the scriptures, as we always do. I'm speaking, you're listening. Well, hopefully. What's happening right now in this sanctuary? I mean, with everybody. What is happening in this room, 1000 Gorham Street, in this room right now at 1040? What is happening? What invisible process, undetected, I'm sure, by many, what invisible process is being activated by the Spirit of God? Well, our writer is going to give us a clue, though you have to jump ahead a little bit to see it. In chapter 4 of Hebrews, verse 11 and 12, we'll get to these verses later on. He says, 
Now he's writing to Christians, to believers. Let us, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort. And he's thinking of Psalm 95 there. The same sort of disobedience. And then these words. We quote them all the time. For the word of God is, these are the words I'm interested in. Living and active. There's a lot of them, but those are the ones I'm interested in. Living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow, and, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Now, the writer is still using the example of Israel and their failure to enter into the rest of God's promised land. He's still using that example. And, and I am still going to get to that story in just a minute. And then in these words from Hebrews 4, our writer is challenging believers now, the church, not to make the same mistake Israel made in the wilderness. That seems fairly obvious, right? Don't make their mistake. And so everything hinges on responsiveness to God's word. God's voice, he actually calls it. And so again, I, I ask the question... Here we are with God's word. What is happening right now, invisibly, in this sanctuary? What is happening today, he says, today? And I think most people looking at any given church service, you could wander into any church across the country, and you'd be forgiven maybe for concluding that nothing all that destiny shaping is happening at any one specific moment, any one today. I mean, we just, we go to church on Sunday. That's a good habit. I'm glad you're here. We sing. We pray. We throw some money into the plate. We listen. Church. But our Hebrews 4 text says that the church, us, we ought to be striving, 4.11. Therefore, strive to enter that rest. Seems contradictory, doesn't it? Striving and rest? Who, who strives? Who strives to rest? And the key is found in, in the writer's description of the word of God being Living and active, 4.12. And, and what I hope to make clear is, living and active is not the same as just saying it's true or it's inspired. He's, there's more than that going on here. He means, he means that even when I'm not wise enough to notice it, God's word is never doing nothing when I hear it. Everybody got it? He means God's word is never doing nothing even when I don't sense it doing anything. It's always living. It, 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 it is always active. It's always active positively or negatively. 
If I don't embrace it with, with uh, thoughtful, pride-denying obedience and deep consideration, if I don't do that, the activity of the word will automatically make me more jaded, several degrees more careless, and eventually stubborn against God as time goes by. The word itself carries that kind of energy even when I don't feel it happening. In the words of Hebrews 12, God's word always unmasks my my intentions about devoting all energies to honoring his word. Discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Today, he's talking about now. April 9th. So, striving to enter into rest isn't laboring to earn salvation. He's not talking about that. But it is striving to push aside any form of procrastination, any false pride that, I don't, I don't need what he's saying. I've got it. Anything that keeps me from immediately obeying the voice of God. The, the striving is, a, is an unusual effort to avoid a particular kind of unbelief. And that leads us right into the next point. A particular kind of unbelief. Point number two. The particular danger of spiritual unbelief. If you look at it, you'll see it in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. Take care, this Greek word can mean brothers and sisters. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you. And there are two words here. An evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. I'm really indebted to, though it's a lot of work, I'm indebted to John Owen's massive seven-volume commentary on the book of Hebrews. For this insight, it's not original with me. Notice those words, an evil, unbelieving heart. Not just an unbelieving heart. And... Owen makes the distinction, I think the brilliant distinction, between what he calls, these are his words, passive unbelief and positive unbelief. Just to be clear, when he says positive, we, our lingo is good. He doesn't mean good. All unbelief is damning. And when Owen talks about positive unbelief, he doesn't mean good unbelief. He means, he means a deliberate unbelief. He means an energetic unbelief, an intentional, actively rebellious kind of unbelief. See, everyone who hasn't heard the gospel is an unbeliever. That's not the issue the writer of Hebrews is addressing. And to see the essence of it, we need to go back to the rebellion of Israel referred to in Hebrews 3, 15 to 19. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in, as in the rebellion. So even rebellion, there's a knowledge of something that is rebelled against. 
Now, what he's going to do is, he's going to explain why this was such a rebellious unbelief. Who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt by Moses? These are the ones that the Red Sea was parted for these people. That's what he's saying. With whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Now, the rebellion described in these verses, as well as the quotation from Psalm 95 in 3, 7 to 11, it's talking about a particular occasion. Children of Israel right on the edge of the promised land. They're at Kadesh. God commanded the people after spying out the land to go in and take possession. Remember? We used to sing in Sunday school that great hymn of the church, Ten were bad, two were good. Talking about the twelve spies. They refused to go in. And God said, because you won't go in, I'm not letting you go in. And they wander around in the wilderness for how long? Forty years. Forty days. The spies went in. Forty years. Wandered around in the wilderness. They wandered around right on the edge of all that God had promised and prepared until an entire generation died off. And... and The point our writer of Hebrews makes is these weren't people who had no knowledge of God's might and power and promise. That's why, in verse 16, he says these were people who heard and yet rebelled. 16, these were people who left Egypt led by Moses. God parted the Red Sea for these people. So try and remember where we are. There's a particular danger being cautioned in our text. And it's the danger of of a religious unbelief, after there's been understanding, after we've seen God's work, after we've heard and not listened. All those who haven't heard are unbelievers. But those who have heard and seen and heard and heard again, but start to ignore what they're hearing, they are, in the words of our writer 312, they have an evil unbelieving heart. Point number three. The only safe time to hear God's voice is right away. 3.12 to 15. We're almost done. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God, exhort one another daily, every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said today, this is all that matters, right now. If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. 
as in the rebellion. I think it's so important to trace, trace the time flow in this involved text. Every today becomes a yesterday. The children of Israel had a today in the wilderness. They had a time when God promised, commanded, spoke. They didn't listen. And that today moment, it passed by and it turned into a yesterday and they all died in the wilderness. But there's more. Then our writer quotes Psalm 95, David's writing. By the time Psalm 95 was written, remember this, by the time Psalm 95 was written, the next generation of Israel had long entered the promised land. So that's not the issue anymore. The psalmist now, David's day, the psalmist wants to apply the lesson of missing God's moment, missing God's today. He wants to apply it to the Israel of King David's time, years after Kadesh. But there's more. More time passes. Now the writer of Hebrews picks up the same account. Do you see what's happening? It's moving from promised land, King David, writer of Hebrews, today's church. That's the leaping in the text. It's happening really fast. Our writer in Hebrews, he takes the same lesson from the psalmist's words, and he applies them yet again to specific believers in the New Testament church, these Hebrew Christians to whom this is written. He sees people right on the edge of missing their today, of hearing and faithfully following. The text isn't finished yet. More time passes. Now here we are. Here we are. In church this morning. It's a different today. This is our today. The others have all become yesterdays. This is the only today we get. And we are hearing the very same caution from... He's already told us, this is the Spirit of God. This is God talking to you today. It's easy to gradually become blind. It's easy to become gradually blind to the importance of each moment, isn't it? It's so easy not to see the significance of today. You got your whole life, you're sitting there, you think about what you did before, maybe you've got plans for the coming week. And we so easily miss the significance of right now. Something is happening in our hearts right now. Not one of those non-listening moments seems all that damaging. None of them. We stop keeping track of them. How can you measure, really, where we're at spiritually? leads to the last point. I tried to think of the right way to say this. I hope I came at least close. Point number four. Hearts become hardened when the promises of God no longer motivate obedience. Hearts become hardened when the promises of God no longer motivate obedience. So the Israelites were told... 
God would be with them as they entered their promised land. God promises to drive out their enemies. God promises them a land flowing with milk and honey. God promises one of them will drive out a thousand enemies. And none of those promises motivated the children of Israel to obey at Kadesh. That's the definition of hard-heartedness. And God still speaks. God still promises. Promises. He comes to a young man or a young woman seeking relationship with an unbeliever and he promises that they will find deeper fulfillment if they keep their relationships in the Lord. Promises. He comes to a person tormented by same-sex orientation and he promises to reward biblical sexuality regardless of the feelings of the heart. He comes to the person churning with bitterness and anger and unforgiveness and he promises that that person can trust the Lord and not take vengeance. He promises the business person burning the candle at both ends to achieve security and pleasure and he promises life oriented around his kingdom will bring more joy than fine gold. He promises people if they'll protect their virginity, they'll have a better marriage down the road. Here's the thing about God's promises. Not one of them ever looks like it can possibly work in advance. Not one of them looks like it can possibly work in advance. He always works like this. A virgin will conceive. Yeah, right. Take, take these five loaves and two fish and just start breaking them. Go ahead. Abraham, Sarah, this time next year, going to have a son. 90 plus, almost 100. Postmenopausal, that's the delicate way the old King James said she had passed, as was the way with women. Here's God. Isn't it how he works? Yeah, that's, that's how I'm going to bring you children. You can trust me if you honor me in your relationships. No good thing will I withhold from those who walk uprightly. You can trust me with your finances, honoring the Lord with your stewardship. And here's the thing. Here's the thing. Life will be found in those promises. Transformation will be found in those promises. Nothing has changed since Kadesh. You get a, you get a today moment, but it doesn't last forever. And, and a hard, cold, shrinking life is the result of trying to continue through the motions of some kind of Christian life while committing to your own instincts rather than the promise of God. It won't work. It won't work. 
And here's why. Give me five more minutes. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. There's, there's no provision lacking. Through the knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence. Wow, this is what I want, eh? His own glory and excellence? That's, that's the calling? How do I get there? By which he has granted to us Say those words with me. His precious and very great promises. So that through them, what's the them? Yeah. So that through them, can you believe this? You might become partakers of a divine nature. That's what happens when you let your life be directed by the promises of God. You are changed, a new nature. You don't just get it by praying for it. That's how it starts. It's called birth. But from there on, he comes with promises. Command, promise. Command, promise. Do this, I will do this. Do this, I will do this. Do this, I will do this. And as you walk in those things, day by day, moment by moment, new nature. Here's something else that happens. Here's what else you get. Escape. ...from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. You see this sinful desire? That's in you. And that's in me. And it goes against this. I know it's a bit of a mess. These desires will always think these promises unbelievable. To the extent that you don't live life by your instincts... ...but let your life be motivated by the promise of God... The new nature is formed more deeply. You start to escape the corruption that your own desires will lead you into, but you don't see it until you're trapped. There is no power whatsoever to be found in quoting the promises. There's no power whatsoever to be found in admiring promises. No. Brand new nature is formed only when God's promise in any area of my earthly life becomes the operating system. New natures are formed as divine promise motivates human decision. Reward can't be found in any other way. Consider this. Most of the people who heard Jesus preach perished. Most of the people who heard Jesus preach perished. And they perished because they had already committed their lives to their own chosen path. They established their actions by their own priorities and they didn't trust Jesus for better options. Or think of it this way. Israel's rebellion at Kadesh 600,000 people rebelled and perished in the wilderness to trust God's promise. 
Do you see why the writer says, strive to do this? There's not a lot of people pulling you in this direction. Hear God's voice while it is today. Your heart cannot stay fresh on its own terms. Trust God's promise and word rather than your own instincts. Don't perish in the wilderness of your own inclinations. Absolutely everything is at stake. 